Welcome to the Brain Health and Beyond podcast with your hosts, Aisha and Dean Sherzai. In this episode, we sat down with Dr. Frank Cusimano, who is a scientist with a master's and a PhD in nutrition and metabolic biology from Columbia University. Frank is an expert in the field of nutrition and the microbiome, and there are very few people who have had his extensive research background and accolades. He didn't stop there and has a master's from Johns Hopkins University in biotechnology and is currently a medical student at the Arizona College of Osteopathic Medicine. We talked about the history of nutrition and went deep into different aspects of nutrition, such as the relationship between gut health and brain health, pseudoscience in the field of nutrition, from proteins to supplements to grains, and the future of nutrition research. He's passionate about all things science, art, medicine, nutrition, and fitness. And having been a sponsored athlete, he blends his understanding of biochemistry with human physiology and human potential. This was an incredible episode, and we hope you enjoy it as much as we did. Frank, thank you so much for your time and for being here with us. You know, Dean and I joke around and we say you have more degrees than a thermostat. I mean, you're so highly achieved and I feel like we know you because we've interacted on social media and we value your input on science, on some of the debates that we've had. And it's just so wonderful to have you with us and to have the opportunity to kind of dive in into, you know, your story and your research. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me. Yes, my name is Frank. And you joked about the degrees that I have. And the reality is, is though, even though I have, I'm on six and I'm working on seven, I would say that the more degrees you have, you just learn more and more of the th- all the things that you don't know and how specialized things can get and how there's so much more to learn in the world. But also, uh, I would say almost the hypocrisy of it all, because there is such a, like, as you add I would say understanding at different level of different topics, you start to understand that everything is interwoven. And whereas you originally did one degree and you thought that you just knew so much, you're starting to realize that as you interweave different philosophies and you interweave different understanding of science and different core research principles, you start to realize just how flawed the whole system is. And degrees are really no more than what you make of it. Yeah. So I would say that having degrees or not, really doesn't matter if you don't care and if you're not willing to do the work and willing to read. And so I would say that having these degrees doesn't really matter from the sense of that you have a piece of paper. It really matters more about what you're willing to learn and people don't need to go to school for that, yeah. right? The yeah. internet is an amazing place where you can learn all of these things and granted, you may not have the formal instruction, but there's enough instructors out there who are trying to teach to a mass audience that I think it's, it's a beautiful thing that any of your listeners have the ability to listen to what we say, take it with a grain of salt, go and do their own research, look up the publications that we mentioned, look up the science and say, does this fit from my understanding of the world? Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. But that's the beauty of it in that it's kind of an evolution and an evolving process that science and medicine is in how we how we kind of see the world, if that makes sense. It, it is. It's, it's incredibly humbling. As Just like you, I, I actually just finished a business degree and it was the most humbling thing because I've done all this other stuff with public health, nutrition, and 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 everything else, and leadership, and 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 molecular stuff at NIH. And then I go to business, and next to me was sitting, and this is in Boston. Or next to me, there's a young man sitting, 
most of the people in the audience were older people who had already had companies. And this young man sitting next to me, in, on his, there's a notebook next to him, in front of him, and said, um, um, uh, epic, I'm going to say it, epic shit. So I'm like, <laughs> I was very offended. I'm like, wait a second, this is a high-powered gathering. Why is this young man all dressed up in bright clothes sitting? And then the conversation started, and he just spoused just the most amazing, well-organized, systematic, beautiful language around business. And then I found out that he was one of the founders of one of these big tech companies in Asia. <laughs> I just multimillionaire and brilliant. It's humbling. You realize that all these different layers give you a different perspective. I actually learned, I, I thought I was completely reborn with this business side of things. Not so much for as far as business is concerned, but as far as perspective is concerned, you're absolutely right. And one of the things we say is question even question us. In fact, we just did a post yesterday and people are questioning. And I said, you're absolutely right. It's not just the truth, but the weight of the truth and the context of the truth. And we have to be responsible, not to the point of paralysis, but to the point of getting beautiful conversations going. And that's where the benefit of all this is. And you do that so well. And you do that because not just your academic background, which is what you just said, which is you think and you interweave and inculcate and, and put it into a real life context. And I think if there's any humility, because that word is overused by people who are actually not humble. <laughs> That's um, true. If there's any humility, it's in the humility of science, which says, question me. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, just question me. So tell us about your journey. Tell us about how young Frank got into all this, very young. So yeah, I started fairly young and I guess with that that idea of humility, let's I'm going to say it from the front is there there's things I'll say that may make people re-question some stuff or that it may, you know, they may disagree with me immediately. And that's in talking about the educational aspect of medical education and nutrition. I think we'll talk about that a little bit at, at the beginning. Because I have some very strong opinions about the way that nutrition and medicine is interwoven, and I think it's done very poorly. And there's a lot of people who have gone through the process who are going to who are going to disagree with me just because they've never thought about it. And so I would say, from the humility aspect, just know that I'm coming from a good place, and that there are some things that I may say that may make you question it, and that's good. That's good. It's good. It's okay to question. It's okay to disagree with me. Just do your own research and look it up. But so for me. I started getting interested in nutrition and science all the way back in 2006. I was in the second part of, of high school and was really kind of excited about just using nutrition and using food to adapt to my body because I was an athlete. I, I played sports, I played football. And when I, when I started high school, I was about 200 pounds. And 200 pounds for someone that was like 5'6", five, 5'5", five, five, I was labeled obese. And, and that was what I came into high school with. And I used that to my advantage in the sports of football and anything and in powerlifting, anything that required me to use my mass to move mass, if, if that makes sense. And so I had a really influential sports and nutrition coach and one of my teachers who kind of led me down this path of thinking about what I was eating to use it to my advantage to take off some weight, but put on muscle. I didn't want to change my weight at all. I wanted to change my body composition. And all of the advice that I received from him, granted, it did the job, was completely wrong if you look at long-term health benefits. If you look at what the, you know, the long-term repercussions of following that type of diet would be completely wrong what, what I would recommend and what the science shows. But from a 
health and physiology background back then that made sense to, you know, to a high school kid. And so ever since then, I've just been fascinated by this. And I've just continuously looked at, at science and nutrition and used it to my advantage and, and stayed kind of more from the athlete and biochemistry aspect of it. I think going through college, I then transitioned and I started doing triathlons and cycling and I became very, very heavily grossed in the cycling community and the triathlon community. And cycling, I used to race nationally all around the United States. I was on our collegiate team, but I was also on a fully sponsored team and we would race you know, everywhere from Madison to Scottsdale, Arizona to Texas. We would race all over the place. And at that time, I was at the end of high school or at the end of college, and I was also at the beginning of my first master's degree, but I was using biochemistry, the fundamental principles of carbohydrates and protein on how I can utilize those from a racing aspect and mm -hmm. tweak them to get the right amount of nutrition I needed for my actual exercise demands and also from my recovery standpoint. And I was doing things that none of the other racers that were doing around me. I was working night shifts. I was doing research full time. I was taking master's courses. I wasn't sleeping much, but somehow I was able to recover just as fast or just as well as most of them. And so my understanding of science and nutrition evolved on how I could optimize my own performance while racing a 200 mile race or a 100 mile race. Mm. And so that's kind of the background that I started this from. And ever since there, it has evolved. And I've never been happy with formal instruction on nutrition. I didn't go the registered dietitian route. I didn't go the nutritionist route or just a master's of nutrition because to me, there was just so much more that we weren't being taught. And I think in the guards of nutrition education formally, even whether it's a PhD or, or a registered dietitian or you're just doing research in nutrition, I think that there's a lot of flaws in the system. And it's my, I think it's my job or, or things that I want to do is to try to change that mm -hmm. in the future. Absolutely. What made you interested in biotechnology? Because you have a master's from Johns Hopkins in biotechnology. So how did that go into that direction? So I was in my last year of college and I didn't know what I wanted to do. I was kind of thinking medicine, but I wasn't really sure. And so I decided that, you know, I think what's going to be right for me is actually to go to the research route. I took a course that was focused on bioinformatics and it was focused on next generation sequencing and how we could utilize sequencing technologies to advance our understanding kind of on a molecular level of not only SNP variations in the liver and on a metabolism level, but also how these variations could affect things like the microbiome. It could affect things like the metabolome, which is all of the genes that make up whether the microbiome or of a specific area. And so I was fascinated by this idea that, you know, we were learning all this broad physiology, but on a microscopic level, the technology to advance our understanding was only just becoming available. Mm -hmm. and, it, and it grew at such a fast rate that no one knew what to do with it. Clinicians were not being taught this stuff. They didn't understand it. And it was just, it was advancing so fast that I was just floored by it. And I said, if I want to do a PhD or I want to do research, this is the route I want to go. I want to go from the nutrition aspect, looking at it more of a precision medicine. What is, you know, difference on more of the, the molecular level, kind of on SNP variation, gene by gene, how could we use that to our understanding to figure out how different nutritional protocols could affect different populations, right? Very much a precision medicine look at it. And so I decided to start a PhD and that's where the master's in biotechnology came. I started a PhD, I went up to Hopkins, started it, and I actually ended up not finishing that PhD and starting medicine because in the, in the first two years of doing research, both at UT Southwestern's and John Hopkins, I, I realized that 
all this level of biotechnology that I was learning, it was on a bioinformatics where we were looking at specific variants of liver metabolism in the cytochrome P450 enzymes. Mm -hmm. I started to realize that the things that I was learning, I was giving my results to a clinician and they were then bringing it to the patient. And I was like, okay, I'm doing the research myself. I know how to do this. They don't understand the research I'm doing. They're giving me the biopsies. I'm doing all the analysis. I'm giving it to them. And I want to talk to the patient. Like I want to take that next yeah. step. And that's actually why I went back and decided to, okay, let's, let's drop out of this and let's go to med school. And that has kind of evolved to where I then ended up doing a PhD, but it evolved to where I thought the medicine, the core of working with the patients and trying to translate everything that I had learned where I was doing it already for myself, I could do it for other people. And I could do it at, at a much more mass scale by, by working with patients individually. That's amazing. This, this evolution. I mean, Everybody ends up in different places because they find their strengths and their niche. And mine started at, um, at Georgetown and then at NIH, well, at Experimental Therapeutics Branch. I mean, it mm. doesn't get any more esoteric than that um, at Building 10 for those. And um, I, we would go in day in and day out, do these incredible work. And then slowly, I, mine evolved. I started doing more public health kind of stuff. Actually, I ended up being going to Afghanistan to help rebuild the healthcare system there. Came back, went to UCSD. We did some imaging and pathology work. Aisha did imaging and I did pathology. Functional and then MRI. All of a sudden, we, because of the previous public health in Afghanistan, we, we kind of evolved towards the public health and translation, which is what you're saying. Mm -hmm. We actually went to the full translation into the communities. And in fact, right now, we're in the process of starting one of the largest, well, we are, we're leading the largest community-based project in beach cities, but also in the African-American communities where... The things that we already know in a lot of communities, that's not available, that's not translated, and it's not translated in a way which, which is uh, feasible, accessible to different populations. Talk about precision medicine. That's precision community medicine, which is non-existent. You know, uh, questionnaires mm -hmm. created in Boston on 50-year-old white men and applied to 70-year-old Hispanic women in San Bernardino yeah. means <laughs> nothing. So you're, you're absolutely right. That whole, again, using that word that I, uh, that's overused, humility of knowing that, oh my gosh, there are so many different layers to this. And then mm -hmm. until it gets to the translation to the person, it often never gets translated to the person. In fact, it mm -hmm. doesn't because of the access problems. Uh, your, your journey is wonderful. And, and, and so going to medicine now, what are your hopes? My hopes is I have more hopes on the educational and the research front of it. Mm -hmm. So I think that medicine, A, I think there's two things that, that are missing in medicine. One is I think the core fundamental or principles of long-term sustainable nutrition. That has always been then viewed in this silo of reductionist training of nutrition. And we can go into why that was if you look at the history of nutritional research. But I think that we need people who understand medicine and who understand nutrition research. And the people that understand both, and we can talk about it, the people that understand both are very far and few between. It's not what you would expect. It's not like cardiology, where there's a lot of researchers and PhDs who understand you know, atherosclerosis and who understand beta lipoproteins and, and functional lipidomics. There's a lot of people that understand that. Nutrition, it's always kind of one side or the other. There's not many people that, that do both. But I think my, my core uh, 
not just this research training that I think that doctors need to learn. It's the humility that what we're what we've learned as physicians or as healthcare providers, what we've learned is going to change and our understanding is going to improve. And we have to have the humility to understand that although we think we know a lot about nutrition, myself included, there's a lot more that we don't know. And there's a lot more that we can learn for the betterment of society. And looking from a precisional aspect, you talk about the difference of creating these health questionnaires for people in different parts of the country that don't necessarily fit the demographics. It's not only that precision medicine misses the boat of saying that we can't design the right therapeutics or the right treatments for a specific population. So much of it is communication. And we talked a little bit about art before we got over to this. And you could have the best treatment protocol for your patient, like something that has been proven to work for them time and time again. And if you can't communicate to them, if you can't get them to understand the importance of it or get them to follow through or, or buy into that, that treatment protocol, everything you tell them doesn't even matter. Yeah. And and that's where the kind of the art of medicine really plays in for me and the art of communication. And as much as you want to say you know a lot about specific aspects of nutrition, if you can't communicate that to a mass audience or you can't teach a patient sitting across the table from you, if you can't teach them that, then they're going to walk away with no understanding of what you just told them, but also with no follow through. They're not going to take your advice if they don't believe it themselves. And so that's the thing I think in, in medicine we're missing a lot of. And I know you learned that in your clinical years and you learned that from preceptors and how to have the art of communication. But the art of lifestyle change is so much more complex than the art of taking a pill. You can convince someone to take a pill for 10 days. Convincing them to change their lifestyle is something that is rooted and stemmed in this idea that there's history and tradition in the foods that they eat, in the lifestyle that they live. And breaking that cycle is way more, is something that we have to have the humility that we're only just touching the surface of. And I think part of that is the judgment. It's intrinsic judgmental quality of humanity. No matter how much, how educated they get, they have this judgmental component. Like, why aren't they doing what I did? Why can't they pull themselves up by the bootstraps? I see this on all the social media where I'm like, so one of the controversial things we say is, you know, if we give up this concept of free will and realize that there's mechanism, and mm -hmm. of course that even that becomes controversial. It's not. It's beautiful. And you give, and uh, the marketing people already knew know that. Uh, actually, most real public health people know that that if you put this much input, you get this output. If you create an environment, an environment that isn't just an immediate environment, there's a historical environment, which you have to address in your implementation. There's a cultural environment that you have to address. There's a social environment. All these things have to be, and I'm sorry if it's too complex, but that's what life is. And if you take it as beautiful complexity in a mathematical model, and yes, mathematics is poetry. <laughs> mathematics is more beautiful than any art, and it is art. And if you take it as such, then you can truly bring about change. The rest is my judgment against your judgment, my opinion against your opinion, and these battle lines of people judging each other, why aren't we not changing in this direction and that direction? And as soon as we accept that, and we accept the beauty of that, because people, you know, often we talk in family meetings and family gatherings, oh, you take the art out of this. I'm like, you know, when we say the concept of love, it's explainable to some extent in this concept of free will and consciousness and all that. Oh, you just take the art out. I said, absolutely the opposite. You're saying that not knowing something is art? The beauty is in knowing and, and knowing more and knowing what you don't know and mm -hmm. just expanding that 
cornucopia, that, that color, that the edges just seeps in and grows and grows and grows. I mean, nobody would know, you understand this because you're also, you have this amazing art background. Mm -hmm. Well, for me, it's so funny because I didn't realize how close scientists and artists thought. I didn't realize that until I started working with some fairly famous or, or well-known artists. I always thought that art and science were connected because it was something that I lived and breathed and something I thought about. And poetry itself, just writing, has always been kind of cathartic for me. But in drawing and doing a bio art and doing any type of art medium, until working with artists myself, I failed to realize how similar we think. And although we view the world slightly different, I would say the scientific process of the evolution of building an art concept is very much the same of when you design a research project. The thinking and the idea behind it, like how can you, I consider most artists going about it in two ways. Either they're making an art piece because they want to convey a message or they're making an art piece because they want to convey a specific emotion. And both of those require the same fundamental process of how to get there. It's just the internal dialogue that they have with themselves. Are they asking themselves, how are people going to view this and what message do I want to get across? Or are they asking themselves, what am I actually feeling when I do this? Or, or what message or what emotion do I want to evoke? And both of those, I think, are so powerful because in, in the idea of talking about anything that's science-related, right? when you talk about a scientific uh, theory, you talking about the same exact principle to your colleagues is going to be different in how you convey that message to your patient when you're sitting them one-on-one -on -one in a room and trying to explain this to them and they don't have an, a scientific background, right? And so for your, your ability to interpret those, that same concept to two different audiences is exactly what an artist does every single day. And that's, I mean, that to me is just the beauty of it, that we, do, we just fail to realize and we forget that so much of this is so much more complex than we want to, to want to think it is. And as much as there's people like yourselves or like myself who think that in a specific area, we know a fair amount, we're just, we're just scratching the surface. We're just scratching the surface. Absolutely. And I think that that's one of the reasons why scientists have reluctance to look at a topic or at a field in such a complex manner. And that's why they are hesitant to even, you know, go towards a direction that has, you know, elements of complexity, communication, looking at it from an arts perspective and from a life perspective. I remember when I was a fellow at Columbia University, you know, having this immense interest in lifestyle and specifically in nutrition. I remember my mentors telling me, Aisha, I don't think you should go down that route. You know, you won't see a future there. There are not a lot of grants that are going to support you. And it's very difficult to change people. This is not something you would want to do. And I understand why. I understand it because when you are in that environment and you've been to multiple scientific conferences, right? You have this incredibly interesting topic and it's just as if the scientists are talking to themselves. It's medical jargon and you understand it because you look at it from a different perspective and you know how to translate that maybe on an Instagram post or maybe talking about it with your patients. But not a lot of scientists and doctors have the time or the energy to translate that into palatable information and give it to people. And I think that's one of the biggest flaw of nutrition research, don't you think? Mm -hmm. Well, I 100% agree, but I would say that I that is the one area that I struggle with the most. And even though you guys, you may say that 
you think that that's a strength of mine. That's something that I actively think about every single day and how mm -hmm. can I do it better? Because, you know, I don't do it that well from my perspective, but I also watch people do it where they're, they're promoting things that I would say are completely inaccurate and they're willing to go above and beyond their claims and be a little bit more boisterous in their, in their word choice about how they, they, they state some of these claims. And so to do it ethically and do it following the science, I think is the difficult part because you're mm -hmm. not, your, your creativity and language drops significantly when you want to use the words correctly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that yeah. that's the hardest part about science is when you're conveying to an audience that you don't necessarily know where everyone's background is, you have to be very precise in your language. Yeah. Whereas yeah. when you're talking to scientists, you know, you can actually kind of go off the rails in a specific area because they know what you mean and they yes. can pull it back and say, okay, well, we know that he was extrapolating on this because of this reason. Okay. But to the general public, it's the exact opposite. You have to be careful in your language because they may not understand that when you and I talk about proteins, we're not talking about muscle consumption, right? When most people think about eating protein, we're talking about, you know, amino acids and a polymer of amino acids that individual monomers, that's what we're talking about when we, mm -hmm. we talk about protein. So from that aspect of it, I think it's the translational part that's very crucial. Yeah. And I would say that the the scientists that are starting to do this, there's very few of them and far between. And I would say that a lot of institutions that have people that are doing this type of research, like that are doing nutrition research that want to present it to the public and want to write about it, not only write about it in medical literature, but want to write about it to the mainstream audience. The universities that are open to that is actually only slowly, slowly growing. And there's not many institutions that have um, been accepting to people that want to talk about these type of things. Yeah. No, I, and I think it's appropriate. I mean, there's a bit of a dangerous, well, crossing curves or um, uh, where the idea of just spousing information in a world that's opening up through Instagram and TikTok and everything else it's just wide open. I mean, and so people think whatever is there is information, whatever the degree of accuracy. So, so the, that world of marginal or uh, correctness or, or often fallacy is just blowing up. Yet on this side, which is the science side, you're supposed to be circumspect. You're supposed to actually, Every word that comes out, every number that comes out, you're supposed to actually hold it to some higher standard. We don't even go by p-values. We don't even go by, you know, confidence intervals. Uh, even forget about trends. I mean, uh, <laughs> I, I, th those things don't. Th so by that measure, it's paralysis. It's paralysis. In fact, the language that would come out would be nothing close to people. I'm not, should I name names? Like who's, you know, uh, plant paradox, like say things that are completely nonsensical, but they have the white you know, coat and they, they, have, they put the stethoscope as well, which we, you know. So you have this whole world that's growing, which is inaccurate and not measured and not uh, circumspect. Yet us on this side paralyzed ourselves. We just posted something on Parkinson's. And we try to be as circumspect and, and understated as possible. But, you know, in retrospect, I could say that I could have been more diligent. 
Yeah. And, you pro- and you probably spent a long time on trying to articulate that perfectly, right? You thought about every single word carefully oh and trying goodness. to make it. Yeah, <laughs> It's a painful experience. You should see us back and forth, back and forth. There have been many times where we have deleted everything and oh, then restarted again. We have delete and- files. <laughs> you should see the number of, which by any other, by most other standards that would have been published. Like, I mean, things that we ourselves did. And yeah. I, you know, I think Frank posted something a couple of weeks ago. I don't remember the the date, but I so appreciated his first sentence. He said, "I really thought a lot about this post, and I'm just going to post it from now." So you just kind of prefaced everything by saying that you know I put a lot of work into it, telling individuals that this is a complex issue, mm-hmm. and that you're going to say something that is very complex. And I so appreciated that because that's exactly how it's supposed to be. Yeah, and and. Oh, we posted something and then uh, Danielle Blard, a friend of ours, tagged you and you came back and you said something very respectful. But at the same time, you were saying that it's more complex and, and you're mm-hmm. absolutely right. We, we don't mind that. We, yeah. we definitely no, agree necessary. with that. Now, the problem is we are living in a very, and, and we can't be magical. You know, civilizations have been lost by for, for hundreds of years and thousands of years. We've had dark ages where we went mm-hmm. from, and you know, fairly enlightened populations growing fast. And then all of a sudden dark ages came and for five, 600 years, we were gone. For people to think that we can't go back. So there's a battle here. There's a mm-hmm. battle of ignorance using uh, or ideology driven pseudoscience as Popper would say it, dr- driving um, um, information out there. And then there's us who paralyze ourselves on a regular basis so what do we do? How do we make sure? Because it does matter. It's suffering. I mean, here's the art. Of all the things that we talk about, these are not meaningless things. These are not just numbers and papers. And it's about human suffering. And at the end, that's for us, that's what matters. Uh, we see it in our patients. We see it in our communities where every 65-year-old in these so certain socioeconomic population, every one of them have dementia, which has never been recorded. So how do you see us battling this disproportionate battle as, as they have it in the military, disproportionate battle where one side has the ability to just spew anything and the rest of us are actually paralyzing ourselves regularly. And we should to some extent. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that that is the fundamental question that I don't know if I have a good answer for. Mm-hmm. I, I think that the, as the growing number of scientists and researchers that are interested in public health from a global scale and from an individual scale, like yourselves, like myself, I think as we come into light and as we not only have the motivation to continue to work on and answer some of these questions, there uh, some of us are going to have different interests. Some people will want to be strictly academic and science-based for the rest of their life. And we need those people. We need people that are also willing to write books and try to sit on um, committees that write these guidelines for the national foundations or for for people that are writing the national guidelines for diet and health. I think that having people on all different spectrums is just so important. And from the very onset of it is you have to find where people's motivations are. There are people who are listening to this who maybe their motivation is to do groundbreaking scientific research in nutrition and look at different diet comparisons. We need those people. Mm -hmm. But we also need people that are willing to go on Dr. Oz and tell him that he's wrong in a a specific area, right? And it doesn't make for great TV, but we need those people (laughs) on every single different area. 
And I would say that that's the struggle is, is getting enough people that are really interested in this and that have the training and the understanding. Right. Yeah. So you talked a little bit about history and a little bit about the dark ages about that we've had these fluxes and, and these changes where we've had changes in, in society. Well, we have to remember that the research area of lifestyle and nutrition is so young. And I, and I say it's young is because the first vitamins and the first core micronutrients were isolated only about 100 years ago, a little less than 100 years ago. And it wasn't really until about 1920s that we started to get isolations of B1, B3, when we started to look at, you know, pellagra, when we started to look at beriberi, and we started to understand what scurvy was and that it was vitamin C. And it was really only from about the 1920s to 1940s that we started to isolate a lot of these micronutrients and understand what they were and how they were affecting the body. Before that, though, the science of nutrition had been totally different for the first 140 years before that. So if we look back even farther to like 1785 is when the research area of nutrition really started to come into play. And for the first 140 years, so right, way longer than what we've been looking at now since we started to discover micronutrients, the first 140 years of nutrition research was actually totally directed towards protein. It was totally directed towards protein, not because they understood what protein was, but what they understood this as nitrogen fixation. And it all started from a researcher back in like, I think it was in, in 1785, who put dogs on a complete 100% sucrose diet, like just sucrose, right? And mm. sugars, as you know, doesn't have any nitrogen in it. Right. And so he wanted to see, could these live? And for the first about two weeks, these dogs did perfectly fine. He said, oh, wow, they can live off just sugar alone. Like all they need is sucrose, they're fine. But over about the next, you know, 30 days, when it started to get to about day 50, a lot of these animals started to die immediately. And he started to say, why? Why was this? Why were they starting to waste away? It wasn't that they didn't have the energy. It was the fact that their muscles were literally being eaten away. And that's because they didn't have the nitrogen. And so his first hypothesis was that, okay, nitrogen that we eat, things that come from our diet, nitrogen, which is found in most proteins, is what is incorporated. So that was kind of the first understanding that what you eat is actually used in your body. And that was it was nitrogen. And for the the next 140 years, it was this nitrogen predominance and this protein predominance. When people were originally dying with scurvy, they thought it was protein. And so they were looking at the combination and the ratio of animal protein to wheat protein that people were consuming. And they were finding by and large, most of the sailors were consuming like 130 grams of protein a day. But they were saying, oh, but only 25 of the grams were from animal products and 100 of them were from, from wheat, were from plants. So we need to just give them more milk. Well, as you know, history will, will tell you that that didn't work. And it yeah. took us forever to figure out that it was actually vitamin C that was occurring. So I think from the, the nutrition aspect, it really changed in, in the early 1920s. And for the past 100 years, those first discovery of micronutrients where we actually started to say, okay, these are the, the areas that are really important, led to this area of, I would say, reductionist science and has led to experts in specific micronutrients, but has not led to experts in the breadth of nutrition understanding and how it affects total populations. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's the area where this next needs to transition, where we're not talking about micronutrients specifically. Yes, they're important, but in most of our diets, we're going to get most of them anyway. But we start to look at 
the quality of our diet, the overall look of our lifestyle, not just diet, but also with sleep and, and nutrition and hydration and kind of everything. I think that's where the area of science needs to go. And I would, I would say that most of the people that are talking, even in the general public about these type of topics, most of them, 90% of us are all going to agree on the same things, mm -hmm. right? That it's a lifestyle change, that, that sleep and hydration and exercise, so many things are so much more important. But it's the differences in dietary quality and what we're getting our, our dietary nutrients from that I think is where a lot of the debate takes place, which is only probably about 10% of, of importance when you look at the, the total lifestyle of how we can get people to prevent disease and also reverse some of their chronic diseases. Absolutely. And that 10% is causing a lot of noise and <clears throat> debates. The debates are louder than, you know, the, the, the things that we agree on. But you're absolutely right. And it's so fascinating that you laid out the history of nutrition, because to this day, when the word nutrition is brought up in the medical circles or when it's teaching medical students and residents, yeah, I'll, I'll just speak about myself. Nutrition essentially is looked at from a perspective of deficiency. So nutritional deficiencies, you know, as a neurologist, I'm asked to speak with residents and medical students. And every year I'm given this topic, talk about nutritional deficiencies. And it's the same reductionist approach of talking about B12 and B6 and iron deficiency and zinc deficiency instead of looking at the bigger picture. Obviously, I take it somewhere else, but I know that you've done a lot of research in brain health and nutrition and specifically gut and microbiome. And we would love to understand, you know, how did you go into that? What, what made you go into brain health and microbiome and what have you found out so far? So I was starting to be fascinated by this well before I got to Columbia. But when I got to Columbia, I actually got introduced. One of my interviewers was a guy named Mike Gershon. Mike Gershon is famous because he's the guy who discovered mainly it discovered the enteric nervous system. He discovered the serotonin receptor in the gut. And he's actually the father of what we call neurogastroenterology. And he's the one who coined the phrase that the gut is the second brain. Mm. Every time, you know, you hear thousands of podcasts nowadays that talk about, oh, the gut is the second brain. Well, the guy who not only interviewed me for my program, but also sat on my thesis committee was the guy who originally said that. Amazing. And, and this idea that the enteric nervous system or the neurons in our gut plays a role in our brain is not only fascinating, it's the research is still in its infancy. And even though they've, they've been studying this for about 30 to 40 years, our understanding of how they, how they relate is only at its infancy and, and, and in the core of it, saying that there's neurons in our gut and what our gut motility and everything that's affected with the enteric nervous system. For listeners who don't know, you have several different nervous systems, but you have the central nervous system, which is in your brain. And then you have the peripheral nervous system from all the neurons that leave your spinal cord or that, you know, exacerbate different parts of your body. And then you have the enteric nervous system, which is all the neurons in your gut for 90%, also probably 95% of it, the, the neurons in our gut are actually completely different than the neurons in our brain. And so this idea that the enteric nervous system and the central nervous system are connected, we have to remember that still, again, it's only about five or 10%. The majority of it is completely separate. For example, if you take a colon or a small intestine out of a human or an animal, you take it out, completely detach it from the central nervous system. Most physiological process in the gut still work perfectly fine. The gut still contracts, motility still works. You still get the same glands that excrete specific, uh, whether it's an acid or a specific hormone or a specific digestive peptide. 
like the, the exocrine glands still work perfectly. It, it's it's funny that it's this this five or ten percent that we're always arguing about or discussing in science, mm -hmm. but that understanding is really what fascinated me about the microbiome and nutrition, and trying to understand what we eat, how does it affect the enteric nervous system and the brain. And where is that five or 10%? And can we use nutrition and the microbiome and the bacteria that we consume from a probiotic form? Or can we use the foods that we eat? Can we get that to affect the microbiome to then interrogate the enteric nervous system to affect that five or 10% to go back up to the brain? And that fundamental area, which is called the microbiome gut brain axis, that communication, the bi-directional communication pathway between the, the bacteria in our stomach and our brain, I think there's multiple different routes if we talk about which what is the actual highway that this there's communication is happening. But that area really started to fascinate me probably about five or six years ago. And something that I did, that was the majority of my research work for my PhD. Wow. And what was the specific topic of your PhD? So some of my PhD work, I will talk about as much as I can. Some of it still is actually going through patent stuff um, okay. and we're still waiting on some publications. So we're still waiting on some of it. But what, what we did is we wanted to look at the microbiome from less of a holistic perspective and more of a, a microscopic level. And so I got, I came into a microbiome lab with a bioengineer, my name of Harris Wang, who actually trained under George Church out of Harvard, who was, you know, a famous geneticist. And our lab fully understood interrogating bacteria and modulating bacteria to perform a specific function or to produce a specific compound. But the difference is, is that most microbiome labs that you'll look, look around, if you look at people that publish on the microbiome, the funny thing is that most of them don't understand gut physiology. They don't understand what actually the, the gut physiology, physiology is and different parts of the GI tract. And, and luckily for me, my previous PhD work and my previous interests and my previous work that I was doing before that kind of taught me most of that. Mm -hmm. And so I came into this lab that was a microbiome lab and I wanted to study how it affected gut physiology. And so for my PhD work, what we did is we actually used bacteria as a therapeutic. So hmm. instead of looking at just modulating the, the entire microbiome, we looked at how can we design bacteria to produce a specific compound or a molecule and get that to perform a specific function in the GI tract. Wow. Most people think of you know the microbiome and they think of bacteria as something that does something that's good for us or helps us digest food, right? But they fail to realize that in every part of the GI tract, from the small intestine to the stomach, to the duodenum, ileum, jejunum, to the colon, and even the proximal colon to the distal colon, every single part of the GI tract has a different microbial composition. And there's specific bacteria that live in the colon. There's specific bacteria that live in the small intestine. And while most of them transiently pass through the others, there's only ones that live and replicate in specific areas. And you can use that to your advantage when you're thinking about, you know, personalized medicine from the microbiome standpoint by saying which bacteria live in this specific area that I want to actually do something to. Mm -hmm. And can I use that bacteria, grow it up, get it to do something? Can I genetically modify it to produce a, a compound or a molecule and then give it back to a patient or an animal model and say, can we get this to perform a function in the animal in the specific part of the GI tract where we know it already lives and where it replicates. And that's the part that most people miss is they just think that you take a pill or you take a probiotic and it 
does all these good things for your gut, but they fail to realize that specific bacteria have specific jobs and specific roles and can replicate in different parts of the GI tract. And it's way more nuanced as you and I both know, when it comes to science and medicine, everything has a, has a function and a location in an area where it has some, some benefits and some, also some areas that we have to look out for where we get side effects. And that's it's same with probiotics and bacteria in the gut. That's Absolutely. so interesting. Yeah. I love the concept of precision medicine, of course. And, you know, you see that happening in other fields as well, such as cancer, therapeutics of cancer, you know, instead of following the same old model where you give a chemical that completely damages all the cells in your body. How about targeting a specific population of cells that are responsible for a disease? And the same thing sounds like is going on in your research and your field as well where you localize cells and you find specific bacteria and you manipulate them for any form of benefit. That's incredible. How much have you looked into specific compounds and how it affects human health during your research and what have you found? And I, I know that you've talked a lot about short chain fatty acids and about biogenic amines. Tell us what are some of the prominent things that have surfaced while you were researching on bacteria in the gut? So some of the interesting things about that is, okay, so let's look at, let's take biogenic amines and short chain fatty acids separately, because I think it's important. Separately, let's, let's talk about biogenic amines, right? We've already talked a little bit about serotonin, but there's multiple different biogenic amines and not all mm -hmm. of them are good for the body. Not all of them have positive biological effects. Biogenic amines is just an umbrella term for probably 10 or 20 different molecules that are made from amino acids and transcribed into hormones that have effects on the neurons. So biogenic amines, some of the common ones are obviously serotonin, 5-HTP, but there's, there's a host of different ones. Specifically, most of the bacteria in our gut, there's some original papers that will try to tell you that bacteria in our gut produce specific biogenic amines, whether it's dopamine, serotonin, GABA. If you actually look at those research articles yeah. and you actually dig into them, you will only find a handful of articles that make those claims. And they make those claims using just simple assays that aren't using LCMS or, or high precision quantification of these molecules and can't actually prove that the molecule that they were studied was actually it. And every time those have tried to been replicated, they failed. So from our understanding, it seems that most of the bacteria in our gut may use these biogenic amines, you know, if they're produced in the gut, but they, most of them aren't producing them themselves. And all it takes is one or two people to start to say that they produce them for then it just to run rampant in the, yeah. in the literature. And there's a guy that I love who's actually the father of this idea that bacteria can produce these molecules. And he has some great papers out there, but a lot of his reviews make these claims that have propagated this theory that specific bacteria produce serotonin and dopamine and, and all these ones. And when you actually try to do it, I will tell you that you can't find the bacteria that, that produce those. Here's a simple experiment that I've done and a lot of people have done before, and it hasn't been published because it's not interesting, but it's, it's fundamental and it's really important, is take all the bacteria from a sample or from a person in their gut, right? Go ahead and do a metagenome shotgun sequencing approach and try to look at the genes that are present within those bacteria. Are there genes present that could produce serotonin, right? You actually won't find them. They're not mm. present in there. The only ones you'll find will be from actually human cells that have sloughed off and then are now mixed in with parts of the, the feces. You'll get some of that. But when you look at their ability to degrade these molecules, you actually find those genes very heavily 
predominant in these bacteria. So these bacteria can break down these molecules. They'll use serotonin and dopamine, mm -hmm. whether it's the COMP-T pathway, the MAO pathway, they'll use these ability to break down these and use these. And we're not necessarily sure how they're using them or what they're doing with them yet, but the ability for them to produce them isn't quite, we, do, we don't quite see that yet. So in some of my research, what we wanted to do is, well, let's give these bacteria the ability to produce these molecules, right? We can get a bacteria to produce serotonin, or we can get a bacteria the ability to produce short-chain fatty acids more than they already do. And then let's target them to a specific part of the GI tract, and let's figure out what they can do and, mm -hmm. and how they can affect the GI tract. So that was really the majority of my work. And some of the things that I've come across that I think is interesting is that for example, if you look at just serotonin, for example, serotonin, I think we hear about this as this good feel good hormone and everything, right? And people want to talk about it in their gut. But the reality is, is that serotonin actually has two fundamental synthesis processes. It has a TPH1 derived pathway and it has a TPH2 derived pathway. And for listeners, you may be like, okay, wait, wait, I, he just lost me in the past 30 seconds. What, <laughs> what was that? So serotonin is produced in different parts of the body in different ways. Hmm. In the gut, it's produced in two ways. And in the brain, it's only produced in one way. Mm -hmm. In the brain, it's only produced by this TPH2 uh, molecule. And that's only about 5% of all of the serotonin in the entire human body is produced by that. So only about 5% of serotonin in the body is actually used in the brain and produced in the brain. The other 90%, as we mm -hmm. hear about it, is actually produced in the gut. And in the gut, we have the serotonin that is produced by two different cell types. Neuron, I'm not going to go into individual cell types, but by neurons and by enteric um, cells, hmm. enteric neur neuron cells. So we have just the regular neurons, and then we just have the epithelial cells that produce serotonin. They produce serotonin by two different pathways, and the serotonin is constricted in its location and its activation of separate things downstream. So the serotonin in the neurons in the gut typically regulate motility and they regulate the um, neurogenesis and the, the communication of different, or different neurons in the, in the enteric nervous system. In the epithelial, the serotonin actually regulates not only inflammation, but also the activation of contractility in motility. And it also activates and gets produced at a high level in the what we consider the epithelial cells, and it produces a serotonin. It actually gets taken up into the bloodstream, and it gets actually gets absorbed into platelets. And most of serotonin in the human body is actually stored in platelets, which is used mm. for platelet activation. Mm. So a lot of people will talk about serotonin from the specifics of, oh, it's good for our brain, it's good for our gut. Yes, but it's way more complex than that. And sure. the majority of it, you know, this 90% of it actually doesn't have any physiological role when it comes to mental health or well-being. The majority because, of it has to do with just platelet activation and has correct. to do with contractility, if that makes sense. Yeah, I, I mean, there's the blood-brain barrier, uh, mm -hmm. the problem that it has to get past. Do you think that the breakdown products actually cross the blood-brain barrier and they might have an influence? Again, we're, we're down that paralysis again because... I hate going extrapolating beyond, but that's one thing that I'm interested in figuring out is, okay, if you have 95% of serotonin being created externally outside of the central nervous system, and it doesn't get, for the most part, doesn't get through a blood-brain barrier, but, but it does have blood breakdown products that's been shown to cross the blood-brain barrier. First of all, is that even important? Yeah, I don't yeah. know if that's necessarily important, but what I think it is important is the precursors. 
right? Yeah. So the precursors of serotonin, which is tryptophan and 5-HTP, I think yeah. that those are where we will hopefully see a lot more important research in the future. There's a lot of research that's come out that's saying, okay, well, if it's not serotonin per se in the gut, it is the precursors. And mm -hmm. we know that tryptophan can cross the blood-brain barrier. And we also know that 5-HTP can cross the blood-brain barrier. Mm -hmm. It can be taken up from the gut and be taken up. Does it affect depression, anxiety in the brain? Does it affect brain health? Well, I will tell you in this experiments where they added these in high doses or they restricted them to almost no intake, Mm -hmm. In these, in the supplementation experiments where they added them, they haven't seen effects. They haven't seen someone immediately improve in their mood and overall well-being. Mm -hmm. They have found a subset of patients with major depressive disorders, so MDD. Um, they found a subset of patients that have responded to some additions of 5-HTP. And there's some researchers that are doing really good research actually seeing that those patients actually have a subset of an isoform of TPH2, which is the where they actually can't produce serotonin in the brain as much. So maybe this precursor is just helping them get higher amounts. But again, that's like a small subset of a small subset of a population. Yeah. 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 Where they see most of the effects is actually in the depletion studies. So for patients that have had low tryptophan diets, put on very, very low tryptophan diets, which originally started in like the 60s, these, these dietary protocols were started, and then also had 5-HTP or diets that were low to be so to so 5-HTP, those patients, they actually found patients that were already predisposed to having anxiety or depression were actually tripped into those states and actually kind of had more outbursts or more episodes of major depressive disorder mm -hmm. from people that were already predisposed to it. To people that weren't predisposed to it, they didn't find any effects. So Correct. I think it's the precursors that we real start to see in people that have maybe... Uh, you know, they should talk to their doctor and work with their doctor or nutrition on this. But I think that people that have maybe are predisposed to some of these conditions, they just want to make sure they get an adequate amount in their diet. An adequate amount is not taking it excessively. It's just typically or eating a normal diet. It's just not eating a diet void of tryptophan, Correct. if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. So, so I can see your frustration when you see <laughs> statements, you know, very blunt statements that essentially sound like there is a very clear relationship between serotonin from the gut and brain health. I can see how you see the spectrum of different ways of understanding that statement. And also the fact that the, the specifics and the nuances are not brought into light at all. Yeah. And that actually brings me to a good place where we can start talking. And I'm sure that our audience is very, very interested in knowing which is pseudoscience in the field of nutrition well, so you have scientists on one side who are complete reductionists, right? Mm -hmm. And they, most of them, not all of them, but most of them have difficulty communicating good data to the public. And then on the other end, you have a population who are not very well versed with science and who don't understand the complexity and the nuances. And they like blunt, almost solid statements, do this or that. And that's it, the black and white kind of a thing. And I love the fact that you're a public health person. You are, you know, you're out there, you have a social media account and you speak about these things. How do you see us connecting the two worlds? How do you see scientists getting into a better communication mode and, and telling people what the real science is without boring them to that and also giving them the tools to live the best life possible? 
Well, I think a lot of it's going to come again from that educational aspect, not only education of science, but also the education of how to communicate. I mean, the past 10 or 15 minutes, I may have lost a lot of people on the science of TBH1 and TBH2 <laughs> and enteric neuron system. And like, I understand that. And you guys asked the question, so I tried to answer it as directly as I could. But the, I mean, that's just the reality of it, is that we're not understand, we're not taught in communication of these mm -hmm. topics. And to be able to teach, I mean, you guys know this from going through medical school, the ability to teach a topic means that you know the topic so well that you can condense it down into its most important essence. And there's thousands of research articles on the enteric nervous system and serotonin. Right. But how to translate that into a digestible format where it actually talks about something that affects human life and what people actually care about is very challenging. And I think I still fail to do that. I think I'm getting better, but I think that's something that we don't learn. So in the area of nutrition, I think that we it really is going to come from the educational standpoint. And I say that because I talked a little bit about nutrition research, but we didn't talk about my favorite part about nutrition research. And the favorite part of nutrition research is actually the fact that there's currently only one nutrition PhD program that is housed within a school of medicine. Hmm. What I mean by that is that about 99% of the nutrition PhD programs or nutrition programs in the country are actually housed in biology departments mm -hmm. where their professors are 100% PhDs or biology background. And while you may say, oh, well, why does that matter, Frank? The fact that I had 50% of my professors during my PhD, 50% of them had medical backgrounds is I heard lectures on atherosclerosis. I heard lectures on how the nutrition and the diet affects human life from clinicians that were seeing it day to day, right? Mm -hmm. We had researchers like Mike Gershon, we had researchers like Harry Ginsburg who discovered apolipo B100, right? Like we had those people yeah. teaching our courses. But if you look across the other nutrition programs in the country, you have almost 100% of them who don't have medical backgrounds. And I know that that may seem trivial, but when I say I learned about atherosclerosis in my PhD program, it was a single course by a guest lecture. <laughs> and and that's the sad part is that, you know, everyone else in these nutrition programs, when you talk to them about specific nutrients, they're an expert. But when you talk about them about how it affects systemically the human body, they don't understand the human body to the level of a medical professional. And I think that that's where the nutrition aspect needs to start bringing nutrition into medical school and forcing researchers to do the research with clinicians so that you can see how it affects on a global scale. And I think that the communication aspect really is the most important part that we're just failing on. And the, and the nutrition area itself is failing from the reductionist standpoint where we're not having people that understand both human physiology and the nutrition. Absolutely. And yeah. we, we don't even address the behavioral modification aspect of it. Yeah. You know, when you have somebody sitting in front of you in clinic and you know that they have plaques in their carotid arteries mm. and you know that they've had multiple TIAs or those mini strokes, you know, where you have paralysis or some neurological deficit and you know that they're almost like a ticking time bomb and they're set in their ways and it's very difficult to start changing them. You can't just give them a lecture about how important it is to cut down saturated fats. It's just going to go over their head. Yeah. You know, they, they, they won't do it. So you have to find out specifically what aspect of their life is conducive to change or what kind of resources do they have to inculcate some of that information that you're conveying to them, right? Absolutely, absolutely. Now, it's complex and we, we keep coming back to the concept of complexity. 
And I always say, you know, leadership is being comfortable with discomfort, being okay with complexity, because it's, it's in complexity that we're evolving, we're moving forward. Everything else is just managing the past. Moving forward requires complexity and being comfortable with that. And uh, we need young people like you to continually bring, especially with a varied background like yours, yes. because it really takes that kind of a perspective with a diligence to truth. You know, uh, Aisha was talking about pseudoscience. The concept of falsifiability, I keep coming back to that. Is what you're saying ever falsifiable? Can we ever prove it wrong? Or is it, you can always can just keep changing it, keep changing it. And are you open to that thing? One of the things that I think that I want to be completely okay with is somebody says, you know, this concept of yours is wrong. And I say, okay, that's great. Let's move on to the next. Speaking of that, let's go to the, some of the specific things. So there are diet wars and at different levels, but one of the big controversial issues is protein. Protein is, I mean, all we hear about is protein is good, protein is bad, this kind of protein, that kind. So we'd love to hear your perspective on that um, and, and see what you think of it. I mean, I think protein, I think, is a really important topic from the example of we have to understand who is protein deficient mm -hmm. in the world. And to say that we don't see protein deficiency in medicine, I think, is inaccurate. To say that we don't see it in the U.S. is probably very accurate, right? If you look globally, there are people that have protein deficiencies. And for yeah. those communities and those populations where they're, you know, patients that have kwashiorkor or people that have these protein deficiencies, for them, any source of protein is going to be beneficial as long as they can get all of the essential amino acids that they need. From my standpoint of protein, I think it really depends and you have to look at what your goals are in life and where you sit currently. If you're trying to lose weight, then you probably shouldn't worry about protein. You should probably probably worry about cutting protein and all your macronutrients. You probably should look at cutting all of them if that's your goal is to lose weight. I'm not saying anyone mm -hmm. it should be your goal or not. That's up for you to decide and you and your doctor another health standpoint. But I'm saying if your goal is to lose weight, you should probably look back on cutting back protein and everything else. If your goal is to be an athlete at the top level, okay, then it comes down to what type of athlete are you? You're a power lifter or you're an endurance athlete. Endurance athletes, and I think Garth Davis has talked about this a little bit before, is that endurance athletes actually need a little bit higher protein intake because their protein turnover is actually higher than someone who is a strict bodybuilder or someone who is trying, trying to put on muscle from a hypertrophy standpoint. So from that standpoint, you need to get the amount of protein that you need. Where your protein comes is kind of both scientific and ethical. Science will prove to you and very, very much so tell you that there's specific amino acids that will help you build muscle faster than other, other amino acids, right? Branch chain amino acids, lysine, leucine, isoleucine, these branch chain amino acids, they are great for building muscle and getting your body to prevent the degradation of protein in more of a starvation aspect if you're like, let's say you're trying to cut for a bodybuilding competition or you're an endurance athlete who's trying to taper for a long race and you're going to drop your nutrients, but you don't want to lose muscle mass. Some of these areas, it's very crucial to make sure you get some of those. But mm -hmm. in, in the growth standpoint, it really doesn't matter for the average person. And if you're, yeah. if those aren't one of your, your goals is to, is to lose weight or to build muscle or to be an endurance athlete, from most standpoint, you probably don't even have to think about protein. Okay, right. so now let's think about the debate between animal proteins and plant proteins, because that's probably mm -hmm. what most people care about. So if you don't think about those three other exceptions, if you just look like the average person, 
then you have to think about long-term outcomes and health. And what is the different breakdown of proteins that are going to be the most important for people? And most of it comes in disease prevention. And when you look statistically, the people that have the highest protein intake before the age of 65, they actually have the highest rates of diabetes and cancer risk. The higher protein quartiles for if you if you take everyone and how much protein they had, you put them into different buckets according to about how much. The highest quartiles, the people that consume the most protein, animal or plant, you actually see the highest rates of of cancer. And that mm. and that's the part that I think is fundamental that people need to realize. Okay, maybe I shouldn't focus on protein as much. Over the age of sixty five, it kind of switches, and it switches because most people just don't get enough protein, and the protein right. turnover actually increases as you start to get some of the changes hormonally and you also get some of those breakdown products from just the natural aging process. So over age 65, you probably sh should maybe increase your protein intake. But for the young average individual from you know 21 to 65, most people should just look at just getting their, their 10 to 20% and not worry about getting it more. It's not that you need it at every meal. You don't need it on every specific day. You just need to make sure that you're getting all the amino acids relatively within you know a week's period or, or a daily period by a varied diet. For me, that's consuming all plants, and that's what I've always been doing. You can get all of them from plants. And when I think about the difference too between just everything that comes along with protein, you're not just getting amino acids when you're eating right. a steak or you're consuming corn, which is you know or beans, which have higher higher in protein. Both of those aspects, there's a lot of other things that come along with it, right? Yeah. There's there's carnitine, there's choline, there's cholesterol, there's saturated fat, there's poly and mono and saturated fats, and understanding the, the complexity of everything else that comes with those different protein sources is I just go to the bare minimum, which has the least amount of extra stuff that maybe I don't want, and that's why I stick with just the plant proteins, which just makes it easier for most people. Amazing. So you get more fiber, you get well, all of the wonderful micronutrients that couple with plant proteins as well. What are your thoughts about carnitine? We hear that a lot. And people are on carnitine supplements, especially people who are concerned about their, you know, who are into bodybuilding. Uh, what is the latest research so? So I actually used to take carnitine supplements as an endurance athlete because before it was big in the bodybuilding used for, you know, most people take carnitine supplements basically to increase their body's ability to break down fat. Carnitine is a shuttle protein that brings, you know, fatty acids across the mitochondria to the end part of the mitochondria where they can use it for beta oxidation. Mm -hmm. I used to take it because endurance athletes used to, all of our coaches used to promote it very heavily so that we could yeah. increase our body's ability to break down fat and use that as energy stores while during races. Yeah. Ironically, that doesn't work on most of us because most of us are doing anaerobic periodically. And so we would never really trigger that fat metabolism, but... Mm. For the average athlete, that was the hook. Carnitine, though, has a lot of other effects. And we know patients that have or any individual that eats a predominantly animal-based diet, the bacteria in their gut will take carnitine and choline, and they'll transmit it into TMAO or TMA, which then gets converted into TMAO, which has been shown to be pro-atherogenic or, or pro-atherosclerotic. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's still a lot of debate about that research, but everything is pointing towards that way. And I think we still need some more long-term studies about how the reduction of TMAO in a diet can affect long-term health outcomes. I'm not sure if it's going to be there yet, but from that standpoint, I just don't consume it 
exogenously anymore, and I'm kind of sad that I ever did. But ironically, we find that if you were to add choline or carnitine at high levels into a patient that doesn't eat it on a regular basis, so someone that eats a high-fiber diet or normal plant-based diet, they actually have different bacteria. So their bacteria in their gut don't change choline or carnitine to TMA and then TMAO. They actually convert it and break it down into, I think it's gamma beta I think it's like butyrubroxyrate or something, which can actually be used beneficially. So it really just depends the other things that you eat. If you think that that's going to be something that's good for you, you have to understand what your the rest of your diet is and how the bacteria in your stomach could be affecting and breaking down some of these products. That's excellent. Absolutely. And that, that also points to, you know, not focusing on one micronutrient or one element. It's the dietary pattern that matters most, what other things you're adding to your food. And that's why Dean and I are, when it comes to supplements, when people want a specific element in their food, we're very concerned because they never change anything else. And they think by just taking one supplement or two supplements, something that they can take over the counter, they're good. And there's so many supplements for brain health. It's just unbelievable. Uh, what are your thoughts about supplements in general? Well, I would say that you guys are probably the experts for brain health supplements. I don't know if I have the qualifications to talk about from a neurology standpoint or a neuroscience standpoint about brain supplements. Supplements in general, though, I've got a lot of pushback from the medical community on this one, and this is just my personal stance because I found ways around it, is I don't take any supplements. I've been vegan for over 10 years, almost 11 this fall, and I don't take any supplements. Now, there's some things that people think about and they say, well, I thought all vegans or anyone who's plant-based is supposed to take a B12 supplement, they're supposed to take a vitamin D supplement, and they're supposed to look at taking an omega-3 or a DHEA. I understand all of those. I've looked up it very heavily. B12, I think from a medical standpoint, me as myself, is when I recommend a plant-based diet or a vegan diet, I tell everyone they should think and consider and they should work with their doctor if they need a B12 supplement or not. For the majority of people, that is the case. They're going to need it. Is there ways around it that I have found? Yes. And this is where I get pushback because you there's a lot of nuance in this. And it's, I'm not recommending not to take B12 supplements because I think everyone should that needs it. For me, I know that there are some plant-based products that are high in B12, despite what you'll hear on the media or what you'll read on social media. And that is that nutritional yeast and baker's yeast is very, very high in B12 because yeast is actually one of the, the major proponents of B12, right? They have the whole biosynthesis pathway in them. And so if you use nutritional yeast a few times a week, you can get more than enough. And I've actually just found out that using brewer's yeast or baker's yeast and adding it a few times a week, just a single tablespoon can get you 1500% of B12 in your diet. 1500%, right? It's not, and that's a tablespoon. It's not like you're getting, you know, 100 or 120%. It's, it's, yeah. it's 10 times that amount just from a simple tablespoon. And whereas, you know, whereas nutritional yeast itself, it's like you need, I think, two tablespoons to get about two or 300%. So right. having those and incorporating those into my diet, which I actually love and I use as a garnish, has allowed me, my B12 levels always to have been perfect. And there's also other supplements that you can consider on, but I don't take any. I think people, I recommend the ones that people should take, but they should really look, they should work with their doctor get tested, look at the ones that you may be deficient in based off of your diet preference, right? If you are a vegan or you are plant-based, go to your doctor, ask them to check your B12 levels, your vitamin mm. D levels. If you are low, then you should seriously consider 
supplementing based off of their advice because you don't want to be deficient. But I don't think right. that you, I don't think because you eat a specific diet, you need to take a supplement because there are obviously ways around it. But I would say that there's, that's probably the exception compared to the norm. Absolutely. And we definitely agree. I mean, we're, uh, there are times that people need it and they should, uh, again, just to reiterate what you said, they should check with their levels. Even then we, we say that if there's low levels of vitamin D, low levels of vitamin B12, the first thing is not to supplement. The first thing is to find out why. Mm -hmm. What is it about, is this a medical problem? Is this a dietary problem? Because you're just eating potatoes all day, you know, that, <laughs> so a planned diet is the best approach. Yeah. And then, and only then, if all that is taken care of, then supplementation should be considered. In different age groups, you have to plan a lot more. Uh, you know that when the brain is growing so rapidly in children mm -hmm. and then infants, one has to be very aware of these things uh, because small little mistakes, we are magical. We think, oh, everything's gonna be taken care of. Nope, the history of humanity is shown. So you have to be extra planned, extra aware, and check levels. We have that technology now, so why not check levels? But I think even then, you might want to be able to take, take care of things. For children, we actually say, be a lot more diligent. Mm -hmm. Just be a lot more diligent. That brain is, that hungry brain is developing so rapidly that, you know, I, I was the uh, deputy minister of health for a country at the beginning of its development. I went from NIH to Afghanistan to develop the whole... 15% of the population were hypothyroid. Wow, wow. And they had goiter. I mean, and you can imagine the consequence of that. That means children that had cognitive developmental delay, 15%. Wow. So we can't be magical. I mean, you can have those kind of deficiencies that must be fortified or addressed or... So I agree with you that a planned diet is the first best approach. And, and then also checking yourself. What about this concept of grain brain? <laughs> Well, you guys may be able to <laughs> It's a speak. good title. Yeah, it is a great title. And I think that title first came from David Perlmutter, who's yeah. a neurologist based out of uh, University of Miami, I think, I think yes. is what he is. You probably will know better than that. But I did want to touch back once more on supplements, um, just yeah. generically, because you mentioned. I will say that I think I want to throw a big caveat for your listeners, because I think that it's important that you we articulate this just a little bit more. And that's the aspect that... So when I say I don't take supplements because I can get my B12 or, or my nutrients from other sources, you and I both know that that comes with huge caveats, right? The caveat mm -hmm. is that my ability has the ability to absorb B12. There are specific conditions, right? If your yes. body does not have intrinsic factor or your body doesn't have the amount of hydrochloric acid it needs in the stomach to activate the B12, it, that's an easy way to say it, activated for it to be absorbed, then it doesn't matter how much B12 you eat, you still may be B12 deficient. And that's why most that's why a lot of people in the animal community or carnivore diet, even though they're eating enough B12, they may actually be deficient is because they're not absorbing enough. So that's why I said work with your doctor because your doctor will know if you need to take a supplement or you need to get a monthly injection of B12 because there are some people that just cannot absorb it. So I, I don't want to just throw it on the wind and be like, oh, just take a supplement or just, you know, kind of maybe loosely follow the advice of your doctor. No, work with your doctor and make sure that you could be supplementing and still be deficient, and that's because right. your body's not absorbing it. And that's the really Absolutely. important part that we all must remember that it's way more nuanced than we always like to make it see on social media. So true. Absolutely. That is so true. No, I think that the, the message is, is clear with regards to that. Absolutely. So for the, um. the, the grain brain, I love, you know, the title is, is such a good title. 
But people need to understand that grain is is different when people think about grains holistically versus breaking it down into specific monomers or carbohydrates, right? If you look at just sucrose alone or just, you know, glucose, just the sugars, yeah, like I talked about earlier, if you're only eating sugars, processed sugars or refined sugars, <laughs> carbohydrates, you're going to have drastic issues because you're not going to have the protein that you need. You're not going to have that nitrogen that you need or the amino acids that your body needs to to respond. When you're talking about kind of more of the complex part of it, looking at the butyrate, the fiber, not the butyrate, but when you're looking at the fiber aspect of certain grains, there are some grains out there that if you don't cook or soak properly, you can have some some specific, you know, an increase in specific compounds that could be detrimental if ex- if consumed at excessive amounts for a long period of time. Yeah. But then again, having those food foods in your diet, if they're cooked properly, if they're soaked properly, you can get some of the best benefits. And that's from from fiber specifically because fiber is broken down from the bacteria in our colon to short-chain fatty acids. And the short-chain fatty acid that most people hear about is butyrate, but butyrate only makes up about 10 or 15% of short-chain fatty acids in the gut. The majority of it is actually comes from acetate or propionate and isobutyrate. And those other ones, acetate typically makes up 40 to 60% of the short-chain fatty acids in the body. And it is actually anti-inflammatory and acetate actually has some of the best effects on human health that people just totally forget about because butyrate has been publicized in the news. So Grain Brain, I think the book was a great title. And I think it talked a little (laughs) bit more about the detrimental aspect that some of these carbohydrates can have on our brain physiology. I think you guys can probably touch on it better, but I would say that cutting out these food groups because you think that carbs are carbs you're going to do a disservice to yourself long term and you need to understand that there's a difference between buying a you know a mocha frappuccino with 90 grams of sugar in it from Starbucks is very different than going out and eating a piece of you know whole or then eating lunch at whole wheat pasta with some legumes added in and then a mix of vegetables so both of them may have 90 grams of carbohydrates but the carbohydrate and what it does to your body and the microbiome is very different Right. Absolutely. No, I'm so, I'm glad you clarified that because human beings don't have the capacity to, because they're busy. You know, when you see an MD or a PhD or somebody at a position of authority telling you with a sweeping statement that grains are bad, right? They won't go into the details of finding good grain and bad grain, processed grain or unprocessed grain. They don't. Mm-hmm. And in nutrition, as you may well know, when you vilify a group of food that is so fundamental in providing nutrition for you know most people on on earth when you get rid of that it all almost automatically gets replaced by something else mm-hmm. and so that's why you see the consumption of so many you know animal proteins and high protein products when you get rid of grain. So it's sad and in, in our practice, we spend a lot of time trying to clarify that that information and that message for people. But I guess, you know, from our conversation today, it sounds like eating plants, you can get all of your nutrients from plants and it has to be as whole as possible. But more importantly, find out where you are in that journey, work very closely with your physician to find out whether you have any supplement or you know micronutrient deficiency and then replace it. Absolutely. So let's end with your future. I mean, where are you the, going? We're, we're excited. <laughs> we're, we, we don't want piece of future where you have a child coming up uh, and I that's know, going to change so your whole mm-hmm. life. 
Uh, that's going to be amazing. But um, we're kind of, yeah, you have an exciting future ahead of you from what we see. Where do you see it going? Because all this background has been building up to something uh, uh, bigger. I mean, I know that you're one of those people that's not just going to settle. You want to change, you want to bring change to the uh, status quo. So what, where do you see yourself going in the future? In, in the future, I think that this is the, the fun part. And I think that one thing that to me is just fascinating is everything that I've done kind of leads toward this nutrition communication aspect, but also hard, how could we can revolutionize how we do nutrition research? I think that that is the area that needs to be looked at, looked at heavily. And we don't need these diets that claim specific things. We need to teach people how they can fundamentally do nutrition research on their own, how they can, you know, maybe create some of these new diet plans for themselves and how they can test on themselves, but also how we can teach nutrition research at a fundamental level to colleges and to medical schools totally differently. And I, I would say just to medical schools because it's important, but I would say to colleges itself, because if we can teach you know, college kids, how to think about lifestyle change and nutrition, I think we can have a much bigger aspect. So for my future, definitely I'm, I'm going to continue in medicine, but I want to be more of the, what I would call like the physician scientist, someone yeah. who does this nutrition research. Right now, I think I'm working on like 11 different separate nutrition projects or research projects. And for some people listening, they may be like, how can you balance that many projects, but you guys know this in research, one expands into two, expands into three, and Correct. next thing you know, you have all these different different science projects. And so for Absolutely. me, I will always continue probably on the research route because that's the part that passion that I'm, I'm really passionate about, but it will always be in the context of education and how we can incorporate it. And I do foresee in the, in the next few coming years that I will probably be discussing some of these things probably in long form in a book or whatnot, not because I want to be my my idea behind writing about a book is not necessarily from the aspect of, you know, here's a new diet plan that is going to revolutionize your ability to lose weight. No, it's here's the history of nutrition. Here's what's gotten into this and how can we fix it? So probably yeah. more of a nutrition history aspect, but also putting the power back into the people and teaching people how they can do their own nutrition research. Like we talked about nutrition this whole time and we didn't once talk about so when you hear a nutrition topic and you want to know, is that right or not, right? We need to teach people how they can go and look yeah. that up for themselves. They don't understand the tools. They don't understand the, you know, how to do this on a biotechnology standpoint, but so much of it has to do with understanding how to look up those questions and who to trust on those questions first. And I think that that's more the area that I'll probably write about because I have a list, I have a protocol list now that I follow every time I come across a new research topic or a new nutrition question that has worked for me. And I can guarantee that I can find the human clinical trials and the human data on it first, and then backtrack and go to maybe more of the mechanism data, which most people, they just see a study and they say, oh, well, it's a research study. I can trust it when you and I both know that that's not the case. So no. um, I think that that's probably the the last part of my my future that will probably be probably the most recent coming up that I'm I'm looking forward to. Well, we're we're so grateful to everything you're doing, and you know you've built that trust in your integrity and in your capacity to give excellent information to people. And that's why whenever we come across a post that's from you, we're like, oh, okay, it's Frank, right? We'll just take it because we know that you have that eye that the the capacity to separate pseudoscience from what true science is and present it beautifully. So we're, we're grateful to that. And I feel like this is probably going to be 
the first of many conversations moving forward because I can pick any topic and I know that you have an ocean of knowledge behind it and we can dive into it and, and talk about everything. But we thank you for your time, for being here with us and so excited that you're uh, you're doing this and so excited to see what's in the future for you. Well, thank you for having me on the podcast. I would say what you guys are doing to me is just breathtaking because there is not enough clinicians who are thinking about this at a fundamental level. And I know both of you are, are scientists. You guys have published more science articles than, than I have, and you guys truly are science people. And I could tell in how you're raising your kids, but also how you're talking about how you treat your patients, that it really, it really does relate to the type of physician I want to be in the future. So thank you for being a role model for that. Oh, thank you. No, we're connected now. And uh, you have a child coming up and it, that's a whole different world of kind of trying to manage everything to make sure that, uh, you know, in this crazy world, you optimize uh, and we're here for you. We've been through it a couple of times. <laughs> that's yeah, true. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Perfect. We'll thank talk you again. to you soon, Frank. Thank you. 